Some of the most sacred moments that I have experienced in my life were listening to two people give and receive forgiveness. Sadly, genuine forgiveness isn't always given and received. Instead of forgiveness or pardon, often it is probation that is given. Is it going to come on? Okay. <clears throat> if the picture comes on, you'll see while I'm, why I'm but very often, rather than pardon, probation is given and one is living in the shadow of the proverbial rolling pin. For us to fully understand the message or the text this morning, <clears throat> we need to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> If there was a problem that could be experienced, the Corinthian believers experienced. It was one of the most dysfunctional and uh, sinful churches addressed in the whole of the New Testament. And in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man would have his father's wife, probably a mother-in-law. And even more concerning was the attitude of the church. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Oh, we're inclusive. Y'all come, everybody come. Uh, we're just one big happy family, and if you're going to be a member of our church and proclaim yourself to be a, a brother, a believer, your behavior has really nothing to do with it. And this stemmed from the influence of Gnosticism in the early church, which taught that the body and the spirit were absolutely separate. And what was done in your body had no influence in your spirit. It was kind of a handy gadget which allowed you to just do whatever you want and it had no bearing on your relationship to God. This, I'm sure, was at the root of the behavior that was going on. Now when we turn to 2 Corinthians, chapter 2 is our text this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. The Corinthian believers were rebuked by the Apostle Paul. They were not loving this man who was in this gross sexual immorality. They just uh, let it go. They didn't love the man. They didn't confront his behavior. When, when Paul rebuked them, they, they did confront it. And they probably did so not in the spirit of Galatians, which says 
to do it gently and meekly, considering your own self also, lest you fall. And they had rebuked him, but not in love. But even so, the man did repent. And we pick up the text in verse 6 of chapter 2. Which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test, whether you would be obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Heavenly Father, I thank you that one of the most profoundly difficult topics for us to consider is the whole issue of how to bridge that barrier between us and another person who is living in sin as a brother in Christ. Having the boldness and the courage to, in love, confront. Father, I pray that as we consider this this morning that we would be able to look into our own hearts, not just as this relates to a church assembly, but to us as individuals. And I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would uh, speak to each of us where we need to be spoken to regarding this and any other issue that might be uh, related in this text this morning. Be our teacher, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Pardon or probation? Webster says probation gives this the subjection of an individual to a period of testing and trial to ascertain fitness. It's sort of like living or wearing an emotional dunce cap. All the right words were said, but probation is sort of an emotional man's land. You don't really know there. And when you got out of it, you just know you're in there. Probationary forgiveness is totally contrary to God's forgiveness. Jesus' forgiveness are answered in Matthew 18, where he defines true forgiveness by answering three questions. First, I've given to you up to seven times but up to 70 times 7. In other words, always. There are no exceptions. And you know, I, I really want to emphasize this. <clears throat> Sometimes we give ourselves permission <coughs> to withhold forgiveness and to hold a grudge. Jesus says that is never an option. How often? Always. Not. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? Because God's forgiveness 
of ourselves will never be, excuse me, God's forgiveness will always be greater than what we will be asked to forgive another. Remember, it cost Jesus his life to the cross to make it possible to be be forgiven for a holy God to forgive a sinful man and to be righteous in doing so because the the price was paid by Jesus himself on that cross. How always... Why not? Because we will always be forgiven. Forgive, And what if? So my Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespass. Jesus brings the issue back to the heart. Until one forgives, he lives with unfinished business between himself and God. I received a a communique a few months back. There's the rolling pin. There's the dunce cap. How often? Why not? What if? I received a phone call from somebody who had carried an offense for 25 years. The cost that this person paid emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and I would say financially was unbelievable. When we choose not to forgive, we are always the big loser. Forgiveness was given as a gift to us to protect us, not the individual who created the offense. Forgiveness is for our benefit, for the benefit of the forgiver. The immoral man, Corinthians 5, had repented of his sin, but the Corinthians were withholding forgiveness. So that is the matter that Paul addresses in our text this morning, and this whole text is about the forgiver, not the forgiven. So we begin then in our text with the necessary attitude of the forgiver. Their attitude was absolutely completely wrong. What is the right attitude? And that is given to us in verses 3 and 4 by the attitude of the Apostle Paul, who said, I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I come I should not sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. Second Corinthians is the autobiography of a bleeding heart. Here, these people who we read back in chapter 1, accused because of the false teachers who had, came, who had come in, They accused Paul of carnal conduct. You say one thing, but you do another. They accused him of vain vacillation. You say one thing, but you meant something else. And then they accused him of being a dominating dictator. You say you're gentle and kind, but you really are lording it over us. These were the kind of accusations that they had picked up from these Judaizers that had come in, these false teachers, who were trying to destroy the message of Paul 
by attacking his character. And how did Paul respond? With many tears, with affection, a bleeding heart. This was the attitude of the Apostle Paul that he displayed to the Corinthians. And whenever we withhold forgiveness, we are nursing our own hurt and arrogantly placing ourselves above the one we choose not to release. And one of the masks, one of the medications that we use to deal with the pain of unforgiveness is self-pity. Oh, woe is me. And we hang on to self-pity and grudges, and we become the great loser. Now, there are a lot of but whatabouts and what-ifs, but the bottom line, it's all about the condition of our own heart. In contrast to Paul's heart attitude toward them, they were causing to this man who had repented of his sin, and they were being way too severe. They were piling on. They were causing shame and, and, and grief. Their job was to love their, this brother enough to comfort him. Once he repented, their job was to enthusiastically engage with him to restore him. Now, how was this to go about? And Paul addresses this, the necessary antidote for the forgiver. Verse 6. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man, so that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you, to reaffirm your love to him. They were trying to make him more repentant. That's like being more accurate. You're either accurate or you can't be more accurate. Now, Paul's advice here as to restoring a brother goes like this. He uses four words. The first word is punishment. Punishment with a... I don't like that translation. I wish they'd have used the word discipline. Because discipline uh, has the connotation of restoration. And, And that was the idea. That is the purpose of discipline of somebody like the man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Its intended purpose is restoration not judgment. That's always the the intended purpose of discipline. Now I want to go back to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we read the first two verses. Pick it up in verse 9. And this is is something you're not going to like to hear. I know you won't. I don't like to hear it. And everybody I've talked to about this just kind of passes over it. They don't want to hear it. But here's what Paul said. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a violer or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Wow, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Now we're talking here about somebody who says they're a brother, one of us, who blatantly, openly lives in sexual immorality, drunkenness, or whatever. There's a, there's a heart attitude. They're not somebody that's dealing with it, facing it. There's, there's a heart attitude of, I'm going to do my own thing, and you can forget it. You shove it. I don't want to hear from you. Such a person, Paul says, remove. Don't even eat with them. Make a statement that they are not under the protection, the umbrella of the, of the local church. They're outside. They're not one of us. That distinction needs to be made when a professing brother blatantly says, I'm going to do my own thing. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, go to such a person, one-on-one. If he won't hear you, take a friend. If he won't hear the two of you, take it to the church. And if he won't hear the church, then he is to be treated as an unbeliever. He is to be put outside the church as a testimony of, of uh, that is behavior that is not biblical, it's not godly, and we do not condone it. Now, 30 years ago, in the church in Anchorage, it was a church plant. We started with seven people. It grew to a thousand people in six years. And during that time, gazillions of people came and went. And uh, those that joined, those that became, said they confessed their faith in Christ to become a part of the church. Some of them had Gnostic beliefs. Oh, I'm, I'm on my way to heaven. I've got my ticket punched, but I can still live like I please. We had to confront those issues numerous times. Five, on five occasions, we went to them, we took a brother, we brought them to the church, and they still would not repent. And so we had to put them out. You know, it served two purposes. It was a message, well, three. It was a message to the, to the world. It was an expression of our love to that person that we would love him enough to confront him. But it sent a third message to the congregation. Sin matters. We re- come to faith in Christ and we, it is a repentant faith. Lord Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. I repent of my sins. I agree with you that my sin put you on the cross. I am sorry for my sin. And I give you the right to deal with my, to bring change to my life. That is a submission to the authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, that is so missing from many today who seem to get their ticket punched somehow, and that's the end of it. That's not salvation. Salvation is a, has, bears fruit in a changed life. And it was bearing fruit in the life of this person. Now, I want to go further in 1 Corinthians chapter. I'm going to skip back up to verse 3, the section that we skipped. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, 
have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed, referring to the sexually immoral man. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. If the man or the woman is truly a believer, and the church discipline is applied, and they are put out, they are out from under the protection of, of uh, the umbrella of the, of the church and the brothers and sisters of Christ. And they're out in Satan's domain. And if they're truly a believer, let me tell you, Satan's going to do his thing. And God's hand will be heavy upon them, and they will repent. Or I believe God will prematurely take them home. If they weren't a believer in the first place, it will be evident that they were never were a believer. And they go their way. But God takes this serious. Throughout Scripture, we see these principles uh, enumerated. <clears throat> so that's what's going on here. Paul was requiring them to exercise godly church discipline uh, in this situation for the welfare of the church, for the welfare of the individual believer who was sinning, and as a testimony to the community. Now, I want to say one more thing before we go on. And I've been asked this many times. But what about when it's my own kid? A whole different set of principles kick in. We're talking about public discipline by a church. A parent and their children is a whole different animal. And parents no matter where your child is, know how far from the Lord you need to be there for them. The second word is forgiveness. Pardon, not probation. Then, restoration. Forgiveness with no strings attached. And this is a process, and it means involvement. Once we forgive a sinner who has, a brother who has repented, the job has just begun. The third word Paul uses here in verse 7 is comfort. Restoring requires walking with as a fellow pilgrim. No airs of superiority. And the person is not a project. He is a person. A person's dignity and esteem need to be restored as well. And the fourth word is love that accepts fully. No second-class status. I preached a sermon about an hour ago in another church mentioning that the whole thing of ministry, involvement in the body of Christ with flesh and blood people is dirty and and that's the way it is in family. If we're going to love, it's not always going to be pleasant and it's not always going to be easy. That's just the way it is in family. And I've never seen a family that wasn't to one degree or another dysfunctional. 
Likewise, I've never seen a church that was perfect. There ain't no such animal. Now, verse 9. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you will be obedient in all things. I personally believe that the primary reason that Anchorage Grace Church 35 years later is still a strong lighthouse in the community of Anchorage is because the church elders took these principles seriously and have applied them through the years. And God has blessed that church. And I believe one of the major reasons that churches are wrestling and struggling and not doing well is for this very reason. They have not been willing to face the pain of facing pain. It is so easy to sweep things under the rug. When I left the church in Anchorage, I went to a church of about 180 people that was 115 years old. And they had problems in that church that went back 115 years. They had never faced the issues that a church must face. In the 10 years that I was there, the church doubled plus in size. And I started facing issues. The elders in that church drugged their feet the whole way. They never would confront fully the things that needed to be addressed and the issues that needed to be addressed. We left. Guess what? In the next six years, they went through five senior pastors. And they're struggling. Why? Because they are not willing to face the issues of life in the family of a church. It's a very dysfunctional church. It was that way when I got there. Sadly, it's that way when I left. We all have to deal with this in our own personal lives, in our families, in our church. Nobody that I know of enjoys confronting issues. But confronting issues is where health begins. Paul concludes with a warning that we all need to hear. The necessary alert for the forgiver, verse 10. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. That last verse, lest Satan, the Greek 
grammar, syntax, construction here suggests Satan's direct personal agency. Oh boy, here's a church that's not going to forgive, boy. That's an open invitation to wreak havoc. The word take advantage, every time there's issues, there's, there's, there's hurt, there's loss, there's pain, but when there's not forgiveness, when they're not faced, it opens the door reach, wreak havoc, overreaching, getting more than his due. And the word device is there. It's, it's the whole thing of mind games. Satan starts throwing in the lies, and we start sucking them in, and pretty soon we become a very dysfunctional church, and our Christian lives are uh, thwarted are diminished. Default in the area of forgiveness at any point. And we've opened an invitation to Satan to wreak havoc. Unforgiveness is disobedience and gives Satan legal grounds to hurt and to abuse and to get his pound of flesh to introduce his mind games. Now, in tying this all together, there are two insights from the parable of the prodigal son that I want to leave with you this morning. Briefly, the parable of the prodigal son was a parable that Jesus gave, and the point of it had to do with the elder son. But in the process of giving the parable, there are some principles, and those are the ones that I want to point out here this morning. The prodigal son was a young, young guy, They said, Dad, I want my inheritance, and I I want it right now. I don't want to mature. I don't want to have life experience. I don't want to grow so I can appreciate the value of an inheritance. I just want it right now. And he got it, and off he went. Wine, women, and song. It says he lived riotously. And you know, when you're living riotously, you got a few bucks, and it's, uh, let's face it, it's drugs and sex. That's what goes on, right? That's what it means to party these days. They went out and they party, and when you're partying, guess what? You've got all kinds of friends who will help you spend your money. And that money just goes, and that's what happened to the prodigal son. And he was down, 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 quickly, all the way to the pig pen. He was actually slopping the pigs to survive. And he was even eating the slop that he was feeding the pigs. That's how far down he had, he had gotten. And it says that he, he came to himself. <clears throat> when we come to ourself, as the prodigal son did, He started rehearsing his make me one of your slaves speech that he was going to give to his dad. That's how it is when you've truly repented. When there's true repentance, we don't need to help, by the way. True repentance is a byproduct of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
And when it comes to forgiveness, Jesus pointed to the heart as the bottom line, as did Paul in our message today, in our text today. And I wanted you to see the response of the father. But when his father saw him, his son was... He had compassion on him and ran and fell on his neck. This was not Alaska. The ground was not slick. It's a Hebraism, which is describing embracing. He fell on his neck. He he embraced him. And the father said to his servants, Quickly, kill the the fatted lamb. Let's have a banquet. Bring a ring to put on his finger and robe. Let's celebrate. (coughs) The father's forgiveness and acceptance was eager. It was immediate. And it was complete. There was no interrogation, no trial, no evidentiary videos, no groveling, no penance. Open arm acceptance. Unless you missed it. That's exactly how our Heavenly Father accepts us. Oh, that we would accept His forgiveness as freely as He gives it. I want to with four timeless truths. Number one, true repentance calls for immediate and total forgiveness. We do not need to put anybody under probation. What we need to do is come alongside and support. Second, full forgiveness is demonstrative, not theoretical. And I would say we need more banquets, more celebrations, Third, to withhold forgiveness opens the door to the adversary. Forgiveness is not optional. Non-forgiveness is an open invitation to the enemy. And fourth, God's love is unconditional. Always is ours. Demonstrating forgiveness is one of the most significant things that God will ever call upon us to give. And the reality is that next time, the one needing forgiveness may be you, may be me. And I really, truly believe that this is the number one issue in coming to maturity in Christ, is coming in a place in our heart that we are quick to forgive. I also believe that God allows offenses to come into our lives so that we might grow in our spiritual life by forgiving. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you forgave us and we had a whole lot more to to be forgiven than we will ever be called upon to forgive in another Lord, I pray that we as a church would love each member in our church enough to love our brothers and to confront when there is open 
known rebellious sin going on. And Father, to love one another through all of our trials, through all of our weaknesses, through all of our failures. Father, if we do that, very rarely would we have to confront. And Father, may we on an individual basis be quick to forgive, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.